0: This audio podcast is from the river church in fort worth texas we hope god uses it to encourage and grow your relationship with christ for more information about the river church visit us online at the river or facebook.com backslash the river dfw it's so good to see you in this uh, crazy weather i was i don't know if you're like me but like uh like, whenever I'm around somebody that's sick, or I found out that somebody is sick, like, do you ever start, like, feeling like you're sick? You know what I'm talking about? Like, this last week I was around Joel, who had the flu, like, earlier in the week. And when I found I had the flu, I was like, I, I think I have a fever, right? Like, I'm feeling, I don't know, I got the chills. Like, am I okay? And Katie's like, Mike, you're fine. Um, but that's kind of how it is, like, with the ice, too, because, like, I, it starts, like, the ice starts coming down and stuff, and I'm, I start feeling unstable, you know? Like, am I going to slip? Like, is it okay? Like, how, is there water in here? But, anyways, I say all that to say, I'm glad you're here, and I'm thankful for our, our team who set up this morning and just freezing cold, and and uh, man, you guys are awesome. So um, we are going to be continuing in our Out of the Rubble series. We're in week three, and last week, if you remember, we we talked about facing adversity or facing enemies from the outside. If you're here, you remember us talking about Samballot and Tobiah, those kind of weird names, um, but this adversity that was attacking Nehemiah that was coming from the outside. Well, this week, we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit and we're gonna be talking about adversity from within. We're gonna watch some adversity from within and as you as you dream and build and we're talking about just following this this dream that God has placed in you or, or put in you as you dream and you build, I wanna to say to you that no matter where you are along the lines, no matter what levels of success you might get to, there's always gonna be adversity that comes right? And so just because there's adversity it doesn't mean that you're failing. It just means that it's—you're just doing something, man. And so at, no matter where you are, it's not a matter of if adversity will come, but it's when it's going to come. And so we want to be prepared for that. It's going to happen no matter what, no matter how successful you are. Like, um, do we have any New England Patriot fans in the house? If there are, you can leave. No, i was can.' kidding. I'm fine. Um, new, like, if you look at the New England Patriots, they're one of—I won't say the most—but one of the most successful dynasties in football history, right? Like next to the 90s Cowboys, probably one of the greatest teams ever, right? But if you look at that team and you follow them, like this team that's, that's been to eight Super Bowls, like unprecedented, just amazing run. If you, if you follow sports last, what, probably three months ago, a report came out talking about how the head coach, the owner, the star quarterback all can't get along. They're all fighting, they're all disagreeing. There's all this adversity. So even in this incredible level of success that they're having, they're still having to deal with adversity, right? If you look at Rome, the, the Roman Empire, one of the greatest empires of all time, what do they say defeated Rome? It wasn't that they were defeated from the outside, although they were defeated by armies that came in from the outside. What they say about Rome is that Rome crumbled what? From within, right? A personal example, uh, my, <laughs> growing up, me and my family we used to always get together on Christmas, and we'd play this big football game during Christmas, right? This big family football game, right? And my team usually won because I was on it, right? And uh, I mean, not look like much, but I'm a great receiver. Um, hands like glue, baby. Anyways, so it's besides the point. Um, but so we'd get together, we'd play football, my team would usually win. But if, as you would watch the game, what would happen is it wasn't so much that we were better than the other team that we were playing, but about halfway through the game, you'd hear things like, I can't believe you didn't catch that ball. How well, am I supposed to catch it with a noodle arm thrower like you, right? And so like you just back and forth, back and forth. And before you knew it, we're watching the other team and we're going, they're crumbling from within, baby. We got this. And you just know that adversity with, on the other team was defeating them. And so as we just watched that, man, we just, we just knew that it was, it was over, right? And I think what's so important about today is that it often, what we'll learn is that it's not the enemy from the outside that destroys the dream, it's not the enemy from the outside that, that stops the rebuild from happening. Oftentimes, it's adversity that comes from within that keeps us from achieving what God's calling us and challenging us to do. Personal adversity that you might face, adversity within your team as you at work or whatever that might look like, adversity within your family. Circumstances from within that, that bring us down from the inside. And what happens is it's easier for us to blame circumstances on the outside, Right? That makes us feel better. We like that. Well, it's not my fault. It's this out here. It's that out there. And we like to find reasons to blame on the outside. But most often, the thing that's going to keep us from the dream, the thing that's going to keep you from what God's calling you to do is going to be adversity from within, not adversity from the outside. And so what we're going to do today is we're just going to watch this rebuild that Nehemiah is doing in his home city We're going to watch as it takes this interesting turn, as they turn, as they switch from dealing with the enemy from the outside to an enemy from within, or not an enemy from within, but adversity from within. And we're just going to take some time, we're going to outline the problem, we're going to try to see what the problem is, we're going to watch how Nehemiah deals with it, and hopefully we can learn just a few practical tools that can help us as we deal with adversity from the inside. So I'm going to start in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1, and and, uh, we're actually just going to read the whole chapter today. So it's going to be a lot of scripture, but... You guys can handle it, right? One of us is good. All right, let's go. (laughs) Verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 1. There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters, are numerous. Let us go get grain so that we can eat and live. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, vineyards, and homes to get grain during the famine. Still others are saying we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We and our children children are just like our countrymen and their children, and yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. That doesn't sound good, does it? Some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. So we, we read that scripture and you might like, the first thing that goes to your mind, right, is like, what the heck's happening here? What's, what's going on? And like the short end of the story is it's, there's some social injustice happening in this community. But when you look at it, what you see is the outcry is not against the enemy from the outside, right? It's, it's families against families. It's people against people. It's the Jewish community upset with their own brothers and sisters in their Jewish community. They're upset with each other. And as we look at it, there's several complaints that are causing hardship in this scenario, And these complaints that are causing hardship are magnified by the fact that they're working so hard to rebuild their city and rebuild their community. And so what I want to do real quickly is I just want to walk through the complaints so you can kind of get a grasp and understand what's going on. So the first complaint that they have, they say, we're having to mortgage our fields. We're having to mortgage our fields. And, And what's happening here is each family kind of has an amount of land that they own right? They have some crops that they own that they can work the fields, they can work the land, they can provide for their family. But because of this, all the focus on the city rebuild, they're focusing so much on the rebuild that they're leaving their crops, they're leaving their land, and they're letting their crops dry up, and they're not focusing on harvesting the land, which would provide food for the family, which would provide money for their family. And so they're making this huge sacrifice Literally, to the detriment of their own family for a little bit, they're making this huge sacrifice for the building up of their community, for the building up of their home. They're sacrificing, working their fields, making money, providing a certain amount of food for their family for the sake of the rebuild of this community. They're thinking about the big picture, right? So that's the first complaint. Where, hey, we're not allowed to, we're not able to work our fields, not able to make money off of our fields. The second complaint is we're having to borrow money to pay the king's tax. And so what's happening here is King Artaxerxes, um, their taxes worked a little bit different. Our tax system, which, you know, can be rough, but at least you're taxed on the money that you make, right? Here, it doesn't matter if they're working the fields, they're not working the fields, you still got to pay Uncle Sam. What, what King Artaxerxes is doing is he has this high tax and he says, I don't, I don't care if you're working the fields or not, there's still a certain amount of money that you got to pay me and you got to come up with that somehow. And so it's not just it's not just that they're having to pay them some money, but they're having to pay them ridiculous taxes. It'd be like if you owned, I don't know, like half an acre here in Wataga, but you were taxed on it like it was ten acres and you had a mansion on a thing. Right? So it's not only are they having to be taxed whether they're making money or not, the taxes are insane. And so what do you do? Like you don't want to go to jail, right? You don't you don't want to be in bad the bad graces of the king. And so what they have to do is they have to borrow money from people in their own community, because just like any community, there's the rich, there's the poor, there's the middle class in the Jewish community. And so what's happening is the people who can't provide for their families because of the sacrifices they're making to rebuild the wall and rebuild their community is having to borrow money from the rich people in their community. And so again, they're having to essentially go into debt for the rebuild of their community. And then finally, the, the last complaint that we saw there is they said, we're having to subject our sons and daughters into slavery. That one seems pretty serious, doesn't it? <laughs> Fortunately, this isn't like the type of slavery that we think of when we think of slavery, like the, the, the horrible slavery that happened in our country. This is, this is what's called debt slavery. And it's actually kind of a cool idea. Like I'm thinking about working this out with my son Gideon someday, um, pay off some student loans. Um, What debt slavery was is if you owed somebody a debt, you could go and you could work for them. You go and you live with them in their home and you work with them for up to six years because there's a thing called the year of jubilee. And at the year of jubilee, all debts are forgiven. But you go and you work in their home or on their crops or whatever for six years until you pay off that debt, right? And so that's what's going on happening. It's not a a permanent slavery, but what's happening is because they're working on the walls, they're working on rebuilding the community, they're having to send their sons and daughters to go and work in this debt slavery to pay off the debt that they're taking on to pay their taxes because they don't have the money because they're not working their fields. You with me? That's a lot going on, don't you think? But here's what's interesting about this, because all, all these things I'm talking about, it's a lot of sacrifice, don't you think? It's a lot that they're having to give up. But here's what I don't want you to miss is the key is that although these are all huge sacrifices, these are all sacrifices that the Jewish people are willing to make for the rebuilding of their homes. And I know you might be looking into that and you're going like, my God, that's crazy. Like going into debt, having to like send your kids into debt slavery. Like this is insane. But think about where they're coming from. Like put yourself in their place. Imagine your home being destroyed. Imagine your country being destroyed. Imagine your family being lost. And imagine having an opportunity to fix it. Like, ask yourself that question, what would you be willing to sacrifice to rebuild your home? What would you be willing to sacrifice to rebuild your family? Or even change the the, the train of thought there. Think of your biggest dreams that God has ever given you, the biggest dreams that, that he's put in you, and ask yourself, what would you be willing to sacrifice for those dreams to come true? Because when you think of it in those terms, it makes the sacrifice seem not quite as much of a sacrifice, right? Although it is. But here's the truth of the matter is that for a great cause, for a great dreams, attached to it is always sacrifice. And the Jewish people understand that. And so they're okay here making these sacrifices. And if, if you want to see things happen in your life, you want to see the rebuild happen in your life, you want to see accomplished dreams, know that you're going to have to make sacrifices for it. Right? Martin Luther King said this, Human progress is neither automatic nor inevitable. Every step towards the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle. The tireless exertions of and passionate concern of dedicated individuals. So it's not actually the sacrifice here that the Jewish people are upset with. They get this, man, they get they're gonna have to make the sacrifices. What they're upset with is who's benefiting from the sacrifice. Because at the end of the day, that makes all the difference. The people who are benefiting from the sacrifice were the rich Jewish people in their community, the wealthy Jewish nobles who are making money off of all these sacrifices. Because what's happening is when the people needed to borrow money, they're going, like we talked about, they're having to go to the rich in their community to get that money. And so what's happening is they're going into debt to their own friends and family. They're going into debt to the rich people in their community. They're having to sell their children into debt slavery to the rich people in their community. But to make matters worse, like the worst part of all of this, is that the people that they were, their friends and their family that they were having to borrow the money from are charging outrageous outrageous interest on the loans. Man, we know all about the evils of interest, don't we? Hello, Dave Ramsey, right? <laughs> If you're like, what's interest? We need to talk. (laughs) You're probably in trouble. And so what's happening is the rich people in their community are using the struggle and the sacrifice of their own people to make an extra buck. They're charging interest on these loans. And, And here's the thing is that's not just messed up, but technically, according to the Jewish Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, That was illegal. Check out Deuteronomy 23, 19 through 20. This is their laws. It says, do not charge your brother interest on money, food, or anything that can earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest. So somebody outside the family comes and needs to borrow money. Yeah, gouge those puppies, right? Gouge them, right? (laughs) Just kidding, don't do that. I mean, you could, it's not, you could technically. But you must not charge your brother interest. What it's saying is you don't do this to the family. You don't do this to your sister, your brother, your cousin. Like we we take care of each other. And so these people are getting more rich and taking advantage of the circumstances in which their fellow countrymen are making an incredible sacrifice to rebuild their home. And so the Jewish people here who are getting taken advantage of are understandably upset. Wouldn't you be? Imagine if you're sacrificing, working your butt off, giving everything you can for this dream, for this rebuild that God's called you to do, and while you're doing it, there's somebody who's supposed to be along for the ride with you, somebody who's supposed to be in it with you, making money and taking advantage of the situation so that they can get a little bit richer off of your sacrifice. How would you feel, right? I think we'd be I would be at least a little bit upset in that scenario. But here's what I here's kind of what I do want to say as I was thinking through this and I could be wrong but you know I don't necessarily think that the rich people in this scenario are bad people. I think genuinely I think what happened is that they kind of lost the vision for what they were doing cuz I think that happens to us sometimes. As we get in we're chasing the dream, we're chasing the rebuild. I think sometimes it's easy for us to lose our way. Like they, I think they lost the, their why, right? There's supposed to be a community coming together for healing and rebuilding. And somewhere along the way, they lost their way and they became selfish and self centered. They started making decisions that benefited themselves, that weren't for the benefit of the greater good, that weren't for the benefit of the whole team, the whole family, the whole community. They forgot that their actions had consequences. And sometimes that happens to us, I think. Sometimes that happens to me, right? I need to be reminded about what's important. What's the goal? What are we actually striving for here? Sometimes we, we lose our way. And so I I want to learn from what Nehemiah does here. And, and I'm just going to read his response, and then we'll kind of talk through it. Nehemiah 5, 6 through 11 He says, I became extremely angry. And when I heard their outcry and these complaints, after seriously considering the matter, I accused the nobles and officials saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners. But now you sell your own countrymen and we have to buy them back. They remained silent and could not say a word. Then I said, What you're doing isn't right, shouldn't you walk in the fear of God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies, even as I even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. So we're saying, I'm lending people money, I'm not taking advantage of them. Please let us stop charging this interest, return their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and house to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil that you may have been assessing them. So that's a lot there, right? But the first thing I want us to catch is Nehemiah's initial response. What did it say? It said he got angry. Nehemiah was outraged. And one thing we're going to learn about Nehemiah is he's kind of a fiery dude. Like he, he's, he's a passionate dude. He's an emotional guy, which I like, right? And so he gets extremely upset. And just as a side note, as Christians, when we see injustice, we should get upset about it, Right? We should get upset about injustice. But look and pay attention to how he does. So he gets upset, he gets angry, he gets outraged, but notice that he doesn't let his anger control him. Nehemiah doesn't respond in anger. It says that he took some time to seriously consider the matter. And, And what I want us to learn about confrontation, especially from the inside, when it happens in our families, when it happens in our teams at work, that's what I'm talking about. What I want us to learn about confrontation is, one, when you do get passionate, when you do get angry about a situation, even righteously angry, don't let that emotion, however correct it is, don't let that emotion control your response. Don't let that emotion control how you confront the issue, right? Because here's the thing that happens, is when, whenever we let emotion control us and control how we respond, that's when you lose your credibility in the situation. Here's what I mean here. Have you, have you ever been in a fight with somebody or seen somebody, maybe at work or whatever, and they're upset about something like you know, somebody ate their sandwich in the refrigerator that was clearly marked with their name on it at work, right? Like they have a right to be upset, but then they get mad. They kick the, you know, the trash can, storm out angry. What happens? They lose all credibility, don't they, right? So whenever you let your emotions control how you respond, you lose all your credibility. So what we learn about Nehemiah is he doesn't let his emotions control him. He steps back, he takes time to consider the matter, and he seeks out wisdom all before he reacts. And so if you take notes, I want you to write those things down. Don't let your emotion, however right it is, control you before you respond. Take time and seek wisdom. And then what we see Nehemiah do in that, that passage, he calls an assembly. He gathers everyone together. And here's the thing. Here's the one that we can't control. you'll see. He calls these jokers out, doesn't he? I mean, he tells them, here's where you're wrong. Here's where you're wrong. Here's where you're wrong. Here's where you're wrong. And I'm not necessarily saying we should go out there and just call people out all the time. But I do appreciate the fact that he's just straightforward with how he deals with it. Do you notice that? He's very straightforward about the situation. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't get passive aggressive about it, right? Which I know I I can do real easily. I'm real sarcastic. I'm good at being passive aggressive, y'all. That's like one of my strengths, right? But he doesn't get passive aggressive about it. He doesn't, right? He just addresses the issue head on. Here's the problem. And then he calls them and asks them to repent. He reminds them why they're wrong, calls them to repent. And then he calls them out to correct their wrong calls them out to correct their wrong. And what's amazing, what we see in verses 12 and 13, I'm not going to read through all of them, but they, they respond and essentially say, you're right. And that's why I, I say I don't think these guys were bad people. They think they just lost their way because oftentimes it takes a big man or a big woman to come in when they're corrected, when someone challenges them and says, hey, you've messed up, you've lost your way here. It takes a big person to step up and go, oh, you're right. I have messed up here. I have taken advantage of this situation. So that's why, I mean, I think these people are are actually pretty good men and women. And if you check out the end of verse 13, it says, the whole assembly said, when they responded, said, you're right, we're going to make this right. Amen. And they praised the Lord. And then the people did as they promised. Repentance and making the situation right often brings worship, which is pretty cool. Now, I know that Like you're looking at that, you're going like, Mike, that's real great. Address the situation, offer my opportunity to repent and give a chance to make it it right. That doesn't work often, right? Like I'm married, I know. (laughs) Like I've been in those situations where like, Katie, let me list out the five reasons why you're wrong, why you should apologize to me, and why you should make this right. And she goes, you're an idiot, (laughs) right? So the point isn't necessarily... I'm not saying this is a little, little program you enter in and you get out the result. Mike, I did those three steps and they repented and everything is good. I'm not saying that works, but I want you to, and it, it could, like it could. But what I want you to get from that as you deal with adversity in your families and, and different places in your life is I want you to notice that when Nehemiah sees the problem, he's passionate, he cares about the problem, and he deals with it directly. He deals directly with the situation. And secondly, we should, as people who are dreaming and rebuilding, we should always be concerned with internal conflict and confront the problem appropriately. And as far as possible, we should never, ever, ever let it fester because that only makes matters worse. Amen? All right. Now what I want us to check out and see as we kind of, end up here, because we've seen kind of the problem, we've seen kind of how Nehemiah deals with it, but what I really want you to catch here is this ending, is what Nehemiah modeled for the people. I'm going to read verses 14 through 19. It says, Furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until his 32nd year, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people, taking food and wine from them, as well as a pound of silver, and their subordinates also oppressed the people. But I didn't do this because of my fear of God. Instead, instead I devoted myself to the construction of the wall, and to all my subordinates were gathered there for the work, and we didn't buy any land. That's an interesting note right there. There were a 150 Jews and officials as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every 10 days, but I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden on the people was so heavy. Remember me favorably, my God, for all that I have done for this people. In that passage right there, which might just seem like a throwaway passage, in that passage right there, we learn why Nehemiah was able to speak so directly to the people that, in that situation. Because what Nehemiah is doing by modeling this behavior earns him the right to talk to the people this way. Here's, here's what I mean by that. In that passage we learned, it tells us that King Artaxerxes had appointed him to be the governor of the city. And what do we know about politics? When, it, when politicians get some perks, don't they? And so the politician gets the governor's house. He gets the the governor's expense budget. He gets the governor's car. He gets, right, out-of-jail-free card. Just kidding. Not really. (laughs) Right. So with this position comes all kind of perks. And so Nehemiah has the ones that he mentions is he has the opportunity to buy land and basically say, I want that land. Give me that land from the people. He has the opportunity to tax the people that would directly go to him. He has the opportunity to to put this burden on the people for an amount of food that he would want, Right? He has, he has this opportunity to live the high life. And, and you could even make the, opportun- the argument that because of his position, because of who he was, he was the governor, right? This is what comes along with being the governor. You could almost make the, oppor- the argument that because of his position, he deserved those benefits. He, I mean, no one could, no one, at the very least, no one could argue that he had a right to them. But Nehemiah makes the point to tell us that I chose not to burden the people, even with the things that were my right. Instead, what he does is feed the people from his own personal table. What he does is he slaughters his own livestock and invites the community in and he feeds them from his own table. What we learned about Nehemiah, and here's what I want you to catch here, is that Nehemiah doesn't just confront the wrong behavior by the rich Jewish nobles. He doesn't just confront the wrong behavior. He models the correct behavior. He doesn't just confront the wrong behavior. He models the correct behavior, which means Nehemiah was willing to make sacrifices himself. He was willing to give up even some things that he had a right to for the betterment and for the good of the community and the rebuilding of their home. As you rebuild, as you dream, as you follow wherever God's calling you to do for your family, your community, whatever that looks like, you're called to do that as well, as As Nehemiah asked the people to rebuild the walls, he built the walls next to him. As he asked the people to trust God, he trusted God in front of them so they could see it. As he asked them to work day and night, Nehemiah worked day and night. And what we see from Nehemiah is he doesn't use his position or his rights as the governor to burden and take advantage of the people. He uses his position to bless the people and to be an example for the people of what it takes to build together. Let me say that one more time. He didn't use his position or rights as governor to burden the people and take advantage of the people. He used his position to bless the people and be an example for the people of what it takes to build together. And I think that right there, that kind of a leader, that kind of a person, makes it really easy to squash adversity from the inside. I think I would want to follow a leader like that. I think a leader like that earns the right to speak into a situation and say, this isn't right, we need to change that, right? Because the Hebrew people, how can you argue with that when your own leader is making such huge sacrifices, when your own leader is saying, I'm not going to take all of my rights for the betterment of you, right? And it reminded me of this, this book I read called Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek. He's, a, he's kind of a popular writer. He, he wrote a book called Start With Why that's pretty famous, um, But there's this, and and it's such a cool story. And he says um, he's talking about where he got the title for the for the book. And he's talking to this general for the Marines who actually wrote the foreword in the book. He said I was talking to him and I asked him the question. He said, "What makes the Marines so successful? Why are they so good at what they do?" And he said the general's automatic response, without even thinking, was, "Officers eat last. Officers eat last." And so we began to think about that, what that, what that looked like. And, and Simon was like, man, it's, that's so opposite of what we're taught in the business world, right? That's what, the opposite of what you're taught. Like, take care of yourself. You get yours. What you, you fight for what you deserve, and you take what you deserve and what you've earned, right? That, that's yours. You take care of yourself. And as, as Christians, right, we, we're taught the exact opposite of that, right? But this was such a paramount, such a big thing for him, and he began to think about what does this officers eat last mean? And he thought and so he changed that to leaders eat last and and, it, and he began to kinda of think of that and it kinda of haunted him a little bit as he was thinking about what this means for a leader. Leaders eat last. It means they go without. It means they sacrifice for the for the you know, the good of the bigger picture. It means they they say, If you need food, you go first and I'll get what's left over, right? But then he said he saw a picture that that really brought this all together for him and And he tells us this story of a picture they saw in the New York Times and it was of a shooting that had happened. And it was kind of interesting and and crazy because there was a photographer who was there when the shooting happened. So a lot of times you get pictures of the aftermath, but this was a photographer who just happened to be on site and he was taking pictures. And what he saw, this picture, was of a woman who had taken her daughter during the shooting and thrown her on the ground and was laying on top of her protecting her from any harm and he said when he saw that picture it clicked for him that that's what leaders eat last means leaders eat leaders eat last means i'll sacrifice myself for you leaders eat Last means, if you need food, I'll sacrifice my food for you. You need water, I'll sacrifice my water so that you can have what you need. You need nourishment, I'll sacrifice my nourishment so you can have what you need. You need safety, I'll sacrifice my own safety so that you can be safe. And I think that's the kind of leader that Nehemiah was, the kind of leader that says, I'll give up my good for your good. And I think as we build and we rebuild our families, rebuild our homes, we rebuild whatever, whatever it is that God's calling you to through this series. I think that's the kind of person that God's calling us to be if we wanna see change happen. Remember that story. I want us to kind of embody that story that we would be people, right, as adversity strikes even, that would sacrifice our own rights to make sure that the people around us are taken care of so that we can reach the goal for everybody. Because internal conflict will come. And remember, no matter how much success you have, that's not gonna change that. But address it head on when it does come. Don't let your emotion control your response, but address it head on. Don't beat around the bush. Go for it. Ask and give the opportunity for the offenders to make it right and give them grace when they do and give them grace when they don't. But then the biggest picture of all of this, and this is why I think the leaders eat last is so important, is follow Nehemiah's example. And we always, always, always need to model the correct behavior, no matter what. It's not a I I give so I can get. It's no, I give because I love and I care and I serve. And I think that ultimately, as we think about that, we have the perfect example of what that looks like in Jesus Christ. We have a Savior who's passionate about justice, who's passionate about injustice, but, de- justice, but doesn't respond in anger. We have a Savior who deals with us straightforward about our own sin, but gives us grace in order to correct it. And I think we have the epitome of the leaders eat last philosophy and our Savior who's willing to die on the cross and give up his rights for our rights. And so that's who we want to be, and that's how I challenge you today to deal with conflicts in your own families, and your own lives. Consider the betterment for all people, for your family or for whatever it looks like, not just necessarily what you think you deserve and what are your rights, okay? God, I love you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the opportunity to come here and worship you today. God, thank you for, I guess, the cold weather. I don't know. God, I pray that... Um, God, I just pray that we would be those types of men and women. I pray that that's who I would be. You know, I know that this is, it's a, it's a conversation about dealing with adversity, but that's how I think we deal with adversity is by modeling what. And so Father, I just pray that you would help us to be those types of men and women, that, that we would model that picture of a leader in our own homes, in our own families, in our own workspaces, God. I love you, God, and I ask all these things in Christ's name.